Hello and welcome back. It's Benjamin Rose and myself, Gedalia Gutentag, with Mishpacha's Homefront, back after a long break last week. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, Gedalia. We were waiting for more developments on the hostage front, and those developments have come. Israel is renewing their delegation right now to talks, and there's a lot of reports that a deal might be in hand, at least to release 40 of the approximately 100-plus hostages that are remaining. However, the deal seems to be hung up right now because Hamas still has not backed down from its demands that the war be stopped and that Israeli troops withdraw completely from Gaza. Israel refuses to do that. There's also talk that Prime Minister Netanyahu is hardening his stance because Israel would have to give up so many terrorists that are being held in Israeli jails in exchange for the hostages that he wants a group of them, probably the worst and most hardcore terrorists, to be deported to Qatar. And uh, that seems to be a hang-up right now also. Basically, everyone's on tenterhooks right now, and we'll have to see how the story develops over the next day or two. Indeed, Benjamin, I think there's just a few points related to that. I think it's fair to assume that it will involve the release of many terrorists. The last round was basically torpedoed, not just because Hamas demanded an end to the war, but because Israelis drew a collective gasp when they discovered just how many thousands of terrorists basically emptying Israel's jails that the last round involved. And so I don't assume the number is going to be as high as that. I think also there's a side advantage to this demand to release what they call serious terrorists with not just blood on their hands, but lots of blood on their hands. I think that's fair to say. And there's a side benefit to the idea that they should send them off to exile in Qatar, not only because it means they're not going to be on Israel's immediate environment to plot their dastardly plots, but also because it ends up painting the Qataris in exactly the light they should be painted, which is our terror sponsors. And they have literal tires of blood on their hands around them, and that should be known. Whether that happens or not, as you say, it's been reported as a baby demand. Some are saying it's a way for baby to torpedo the talks. And Vinyama, that highlights the kind of two push and pull around this dynamic, because anyone who's been around Tel Aviv recently will know that the anti-Bibi protests have transmogrified into bring the captives home now movement, which is blocking roads, etc. It's the same people often, but that's the push to the impetus behind perhaps this round of hostage talks. But the other, that the countervailing force is comes from within, especially the national religious community, which is saying that no way, we're not going to do this. These hostages are simply not more important than the hundreds and hundreds of Israelis who will die when these terrorists get back onto the streets. So you have the push and pull dynamic over here. And that one, I think, will determine, along with Hamas's sense of pressure, whether A, a deal will happen, and B, whether the nature of the deal. The problem with deporting them to Qatar is that there's no way to stop them from coming back. If we were going to put some sort of device on them in order to monitor and track them, for example, what America did with Jonathan Pollard then when they released him from jail, and they tracked him for five years until they finally let him go, Without something like that, which obviously is not going to happen, again, there's no way to stop them from coming back in. They can stay in Qatar for a month or two or six months, however long they feel they need to uh, chill out, so to speak. And then they can work their way back into Egypt and Jordan. And from there, it's not that difficult to get snuck back into Judea and Samaria, to the Palestinian territories or into Gaza. And then they're causing us uh, trouble again. You have to be extremely careful. And I understand the opposition to uh, such a deal. I also understand the concept of we want to get our hostages out and save their lives. Again, we've discussed this many times before. It's a very complicated formula. It's not a mathematical formula. 
And you have to pray that the people in charge are going to make the right decision and that it's going to work out no matter what. Just in terms of tracking them, I would say that for all those fans of the conspiracy theorists from the COVID era, that the COVID vaccine was really a way of implanting Microsoft chips and tracking devices. I think they just give them a COVID vaccine to, and that will do the job. But in all seriousness, you're correct. These people can make it back. I think it also depends on the control of other borders with Gaza. Will there be Israeli controlled as the government's promising? And that's another factor. But I think ultimately, when it comes down to Israelis in general, there's some magic number beyond which Israelis won't swallow the number released, but below which a substantial portion of Israelis will say, well, that's a fair trade-off, or that's the trade-off that we've got a stomach in order to get these, to get our hostages back. The only question is, there's periodic reports of Yichia Sinwa, we had last week of Yichia Sinwa crossing the border, smuggling himself out to possibly to Egypt and beyond. But the question is, I think most Israelis will say that if we can get a hostage back, even if that means the Arch terrorist himself, the Yichia Sinwa being given a free exit pass to a Tunisia style, when the PLO got out to Tunisia decades ago in the 70s, I think it was, many Israelis will say, yes, that's what's going to happen. They do Benjamin, hold a massive card over here. We should not forget it. Because I think, again, it's a trade-off and it's a balance of just how much the question, it's just a question of just how many will go free, not whether they will go free. Another related problem with that we saw last week when there was a terror attack at the checkpoint leading to into Yerushalayim from Mala Adumim, which is to the east of Yerushalayim. And it's very easy for a terrorist to slip in. I just want to try to give a little bit of a picture of what happened because two Jews were killed. There were others who were injured. And again, Mala Adumim is uh, to the east of Jerusalem and it's on the road to the Dead Sea. And what happens is that these checkpoints, and I see this a lot in Beitar because we have kids in Beitar and grandchildren in Beitar, so we go there all the time. But you have this huge checkpoint in Gush Etzion before the tunnels. They call it the Kvish Hamin Harot. And at least at the Kvish Hamin Harot, going from Beitar to Yerushalayim, there are four lanes. And there's never more than two of them open at any one time. But they're manned by the Mishmar Hagavul, the Border Patrol. I, I can understand how there could be manpower shortages. But for years now, we've been going back and forth. And Again, there's never been more than two lanes open at any one time. So what happens is you have these tremendous traffic jams and it's, God forbid, but it's a death trap. We had such a situation at the Kvisham in Harot a few months ago, and now history repeated itself in Mala Dumim last week. This is something, firstly, that has to be solved. The terrorists, they were able to come off a side road and then target this, as you said, this death trap, these many cars waiting, there was nowhere for them to escape to. Was that the case? Yes, and I know exactly what you mean, because I've stumbled into that side road. There was one time I was trying to avoid the big traffic jam in the one lane that was open, going from al Dumim to Jerusalem. And I ended up, it didn't take me long to realize that I was on my way into Area A very quickly. So I quickly reversed. And uh, then when I came back to the checkpoint, the Border Patrol guard saw me and he said, what were you doing in that town? And I said, I just stumbled. I said, I made a wrong turn. And I guess he believed me. You heard to tell the tale. Yeah, he didn't inspect my car or anything like that. But again, this is something that we need to do something about. And unfortunately, I think our reaction was a bit off message, as the saying goes, because I heard Benny Kesriel, who's the mayor of Mala Adumim, and what he was saying is that you don't need a checkpoint between Mala Adumim and Jerusalem. What you need is you need a checkpoint coming out of the Arab towns of Anata and Isiwawa. And there's one other Arab town there whose name escapes me right now. He said, that's where the checkpoint should be. He said that once you inspect the people coming out of there and they're fine, then 
you don't need any more inspection going into Jerusalem. I think he's right. And so what Israel did instead was they made a big announcement that they're going to build, as the saying goes, new settlements, which really is just adding some housing units to Mala Dumim. Mala Dumim is a very nice suburban community. About 25,000 Jews live there now. And they want to add about 3,500 homes. But this plan, which they call E1, has been on the books for decades, literally decades. And it's been held up not only for political reasons, because it would connect Mala Dumim to Jerusalem and quote unquote, make it difficult to have a contiguous Palestinian state, but also it's been held up by other bureaucratic meandering in different committees and because of environmentalists and things like that. But what we did by announcing that was we played right into the Americans' hands because immediately, if not sooner, Tony Blinken, he was in Buenos Aires, he had obviously better things to do. And a reporter asks him, what about these new Israeli settlements? And all of a sudden he comes up with this line that the, the settlements are inconsistent with the international law, which makes it sound as if he's going back and reversing the change that the Trump administration made. The Pompeo uh, change. Yeah, the Pompeo change where Pompeo, when he was secretary of state, said that the U.S. no longer views the settlements as uh, illegal or in contravention of international law. Now, it's not entirely clear to me, Gadot, we've been very critical of Blinken and the Biden administration many times. It's not entirely clear that Blinken's statement was aimed at all of the existing settlements right now. If you listen to what he said, which I did twice to make sure that I understood it correctly, he was clearly referring to the announcement that was made. He maybe went a little bit too far when he said that uh, the settlements are inconsistent with the international law. But again, he added right after that, uh, he talked about settlement expansion. I think the media, to a great extent, has spun this into being that the Biden administration has gone back on the Pompeo Declaration. It could be they have, but uh, I'm not entirely sure. And I would stay tuned for further clarification and developments on that. I think the fact that the right wing in Israel did not react in any kind of big way to uh, Blinken's uh, statement at all, I think tells us that uh, perhaps it's not quite as draconian, as earth-shaking as it came out to be. Benjamin, my reaction to that, and thank you for that, it's very important context because I just read those headlines and I thought, yeah, he's gone back on it. And it's of a piece with the leftward lurch of the Biden administration in so many areas, especially when it relates to Israel and the Palestinians recently. So that is important context and worth watching this space. But for me, Benjamin, the biggest takeaway of it is that there's, the, what has happened is that rhetoric on the right has for so long replaced action and much better just build the stuff rather than announce things. So often rhetoric substitutes for action precisely because it's just a political thing to placate and to keep a right-wing coalition together, but there's no real building going on. And I think I'm comfortable with this policy or these kind of statements that come out from those parts of the Israeli population, the Dati Lomi community that's involved in actually the work of settling the land. And they come up and they say the reaction to terror is more settlement. And I get, it, I get what they're saying, but it does so much damage internationally. And given the fact that there is so little building going on, it just means that here that my Gullus Jews, my Gullus Jew censors, go on alert and I say, what he's done is, why, is, is wind up the West and wind up Israel's Western allies who are so tenuously connected in so many ways anyway. What have you achieved anywhere? Was anything built? No. So I think it's really, just keep quiet. It's not the time to talk. Don't talk so much, just build. And I think that has to be said more. But let's talk a minute about the international context, which you just referred to, but there's something which is disturbing which is coming out of Britain, specifically the foreign minister, David Cameron, 
what we said, when it's very dangerous, he's a nice man with a nice smile, but he's and a self-professed Israel ally, but he's a man in search of a legacy after going down in flames over, he was on the wrong side of the Brexit referendum. And clearly after being in the office the last few months, he has just been on a legacy building exercise, which has been very damaging for Israel. His latest threat is that is if Israel goes into Rafa or Rafiaf, then it's going to stop arms sales to Israel, which is how damaging is that? So it comes out the latest statistics in 2022, Britain sold 42 million pounds of military kit to Israel, which doesn't sound enormous. Bear in mind that since 2015, there's been licenses for almost half a billion pounds of military exports, and those include a common aircraft components on missiles and bits for tanks and technology and small arms and ammunition. I think, Binyamin, there's two important things to notice over here. Number one, specifically, it will target Israel's air force because the UK provides about 15% of the components for the F-35 stealth fighter, which is currently being used, which is currently Israel's principal tool to threaten Iran and the Iranian nuclear program. That's very important to know because the F-35 was built as an international collaboration. Obviously, its main bit, the heavy lifting was done by the United States, but many parts were subcontracted to different partners who make it. So Israel could end up with a sticky situation in which their most advanced aircraft that supplies them is shut up. That's the first thing I'd say. And the second thing is, the second thing is you have to understand how things work. Meaning Biden and the Biden administration is having left and has been there doing for some time over Israel and the Palestinians, Israel and Gaza. And yet, for domestic political reasons, it will look for others, European partners, to lead the way when it comes to criticizing Israel. Because obviously there's a Jewish constituency and a pro-Israel constituency to be taken into account. Cameron, David Cameron is not acting alone. This will be coordinated, I would think, with the Biden administration as a way to enable the US to exert more pressure, potentially. And so over here, I think it's significant, not just in terms of cutting up the supply of whatever it is supplies for the F-35. I think more significant in the immediate term is the leverage and the pressure that it gives further on Israel. And that is worrying to me. In the meantime, I understand that the Rishi Sunak government in Britain is in a bit of trouble. There's been some scandals and there's talk of early elections. How do you see that playing out? Binyamin, playing out badly. It's been widely assumed that it's just basically in all but a certainty that Labour is under Keir Starmer, who's a Jeremy Corbyn successor, is going to make a clean sweep. The question is, is it a landslide or not? But definitely they're going to come into power. It's meant to be elections next year, but as you say, it could be earlier. But the point being, I think this is heading nowhere good because Although Keir Starmer has made a flagship part of his flank of his term in office is to detoxify and decarbonize the Labour Party, we know that just in the last couple of weeks, a by-election in a place called Rochdale, which is near the front community of Manchester, led to the Labour candidate there was only forced out from the running under pressure after it became clear he's a Muslim. And he said some horrific things, such as that Israel had manufactured or, or was happy with the October the 7th massacre. And it was only after immense pressure coming from the Jewish Chronicle, amongst others from the right, that Keir Starmer gave him the boot after a few days, which is very worrying. This is a man who has said he's going to detoxify Labour, and yet he's clearly, this party is so toxic still, that they're all but certain to come to power next year, and I think it's worrying. Okay, it's going to be an interesting uh, year when it comes to elections. Not only Great Britain is probably going to have an election, as we just discussed, but of course, the U.S. will have to see if there's a change of administration and what policy changes that might bring with it. If we want to close on a positive point, I have at least a small one today. I noticed that Israel's economy minister, Nir Barkat, former mayor of Jerusalem, who's now a Likud MK, and the possibility for the prime minister's position or the leadership of the Likud one day in Israel. So 
He's in the UAE now, and he met on the sidelines of the conference with the trade minister of Saudi Arabia. And it was a public meeting. This goes to show that the relations between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are still possible without a Palestinian state. Again, as we've mentioned many times on this program, it's an interest of the Saudi Arabians to have relations with Israel. They're developing. They're not contingent upon the, the establishment of a Palestinian state, no matter what pronouncements the Saudis make every once in a while. And we should view this as a positive. We should see that Israel has what to offer and Israel can stick to its guns, both literally and figuratively, and still continue to foster relations with the people in the Muslim and Arab world who are looking to be responsible citizens of the world. And I just, I think that really ties into what we reported recently, that some of the analysts are pointing out that while Israel is, seems to be diplomatically isolated in a growing sense, it's actually not as bad as you think. And unlike in previous wars, where ceasefires have been forced on Israel after a very short time, as sometimes to Israel's disadvantage, this has not been the case, which is much better than before. And so on that relatively bright note, Benjamin, I want to wish you and the listeners everywhere a good and peaceful day.